Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast, everybody. We've got a fun one for you today. I'm here with Terry Fakes, and we're going to do another installment of our Through the Bible series, and we're doing one of the shortest and one of the most exciting letters in the New Testament. I'm pretty excited to get to Jude. Same here, because I also think it's one that people avoid a little bit, partly because it's tucked away with some of the smaller letters. But Jude addresses some pretty unique topics that seem a little cryptic at first, and hopefully we can shed some light on that. Yeah, there's not another book in the in the Bible that's quite like Jude. And, and we're going to talk here in a minute about the relationship between Jude and the rest of the Bible. But you get a very unique pastoral uh literary, even the Greek yeah. of Jude is really interesting, a take right here at the end of the Bible. And so while it's it's tempting to just continue to turn the page and get into Revelation, uh, and a lot of times on reading plans, it, you die out before you get to Jude. It's perfectly <laughs> positioned to not be studied. Right. But it is a very, very important book and a fun one to get to dive into. It is. So I want to start out the way we usually do on these episodes and just say, give us a little bit of background. Who is Jude? What was the occasion for writing this? What do we know about the background before we get into this book? Well, I'm going to make a disclaimer when I start and say that almost everything we're going to say is currently and historically has been argued about with Jude. The fact that it is a little cryptic, the fact that uh, the topics it talks about uh, make it just easy for academics to argue and say, well, maybe it's not this Jude, maybe it's some other Jude, and maybe the reason it was written was because of this particular historical event, etc. But I'm going to give you the thread of what I consider to be a pretty well-accepted, pretty orthodox view of this. The early church didn't have much doubt about this, that the author of this letter is Jude, the brother of James, as verse 1 says, meaning James, the brother of Jesus. James, the leader in the early church in Jerusalem. So that this Jude, or Judas, which be the same name, would be one of the half-brothers of Jesus, who, even though they were a little skeptical during his ministry, by all historical accounts from the church fathers, became very devoted followers of Christ, very devoted preachers and leaders in the church. So I think that's this Jude. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I would. I think the there's two interesting things about this from a outside attestation standpoint. The first is how well supported the authorship of Jude is early in comparison to some of the other books in the New Testament. Right. So we take a standpoint on this on this podcast for what I think are reasons uh, that, that coincide with our high view of Scripture and reasons that coincide with scholarship that the books of the New Testament are written by the people that they said that they're written by. Right. Um, so from the get-go, we, we're operating under an assumption this is written by Jude. But there are actually really great reasons to believe that it's by Jude as well. And the first of those is early, early evidence that people thought this was written by Jude. It would be a very difficult thing to pull off to claim to be written by a half-brother of Jesus, especially early, Yes, and uh, and to have survived as long as uh, it took to get in the canon. Now, the thing that's interesting in verse 1 is James tells us, and we did this one a few weeks ago, James tells us that he is a servant of Christ, and that's it. And we, just, we know from tradition that he was 
the same James that we read about in the book of Acts, who is one of the leaders of the church of Jerusalem. Jude gives us another piece of information. He is the brother of James. He also doesn't tell us that he's a brother of the Lord, but he does tell us that he's a brother of James. That's because James was really well known. Yes. In fact, one of the things that's really helpful about Jude is it gives us information about James. It tells us what a priority James had in the early church. The unusual thing about this is we don't read about Jude in any of the canonical literature that we have. I don't think there's a right. single reference to Jude. Now, we obviously get references in the gospel that Jesus had multiple brothers, but mm-hmm. we don't get any evidence of Jude specifically. And there's all kinds of conjectures as to why that is or who it might be, or maybe he was this person or that person or or something along those lines, but we really don't know anything about his background other than he is serving alongside his brother, James, in the church in Jerusalem. And uh, we don't actually know where this letter is written to. We just know that it was coming out of the ministry that was going on in the church of Jerusalem. Uh, But as for background, that's about all we know other than what we get in the book. Would you add anything? Well, I would ask you one question. I've read quite a bit about this and I have an opinion, but there uh, one other anomaly of the book of Jude is there are passages here, particularly in Greek, you won't see it quite as much in the English, that literally mirror certain passages in the second letter of Peter, second Peter. Uh, what's your thinking on that? Why is that happening? Is that Does that surprise you? Is there any uh, anything about that that you find significant? This is probably the textual issue with Jude. If you open up a Jude commentary or a Second Peter commentary, this is what you're going to spend your first 30 pages reading about, is the, the textual relationship between Jude and Second Peter. And we talked about this a little bit when we did the Gospel of Mark. And uh, again, we've mentioned it several times. Scholars have certain things they like to do when they find textual dependence. So when I read something in Jude that sounds an awful lot like something I read in Second Peter, there are certain moves that scholars like to make right. as to explain that. And I just want to point out two of them. The first one would be that either Jude or Second Peter was written with the author having read the other letter. So a lot of times what you'll see is that Jude is, is dependent on 2 Peter and was written after the fact. Jude had 2 Peter. He's writing a similar kind of letter. He maybe even is imitating the letter. I mean, people go all over the place on this. And that's why you see the repetition. The other thing that people like to do when they see something like this is to assume that there is another document that has some of this source material. This is what's often done in the Gospels. Right. That has this source material that must have been used by both authors to write their respective letters. And the way that people usually do this with Jude is, Jude is going to quote from the book of Enoch and arguably a couple of other extra-canonical documents that would have been well-known in the first century. Right. So there's no doubt that there was a Gospel of Enoch. In fact, you can read the Gospel of Enoch uh, or the Book of Enoch, if you book want to. Uh-huh. Absolutely. And uh, there's good scholarship. There's critical editions of it. There are even commentaries on it that you could read if you want to. Uh-huh. It, it is not a book of the Bible, but it is an important book, and we'll talk about its importance here in a minute. But people even hypothesize that from the Book of Enoch, there is another document that maybe an early catechist or an early teacher in Jerusalem may have put together that both Jude and Peter had access to. And so they are actually just saying things that were commonly taught. 
I want to say that I don't think it matters whether there is a third document or whether there are only these two documents. What makes the most sense to me is Peter was in the Jerusalem church for a long time. Yep. James was in the Jerusalem church for a long time. Jude was in the Jerusalem church for a long time. They taught together. They talked to they they exactly. talked to each other. They counseled together. It doesn't surprise me at all that you get similar illustrations and quotes and things from these teachers who spent a lot of their ministry together in Jerusalem. It would be the same way as when you see two pastors at the same church refer to the same book over and over and over again. Um, or if you have a pastor who trained under one pastor, he goes and does membership at their church the exact same way as their sending church did, etc. That's what I think is going on in Second Peter and Jude. I don't think they were copying from each other. I think they have a really strong base of common knowledge, whether that involves another teacher or not. Uh, they were effectively elders together in Jerusalem, leading the church, teaching. It's not surprising to me that we get some similar quotes and a similar structure to these letters. I agree. And uh, this is a good time to just give you, a, a for our listeners, give them a, a point, is when you read commentaries by scholars, which I recommend, you're going to see they live in a little bit of an ivory tower and they limit their presumptions a little bit. And let me give you an example. Is It's very popular now to look at these documents and say, I don't want to just deal with what they say. I want to deal with the document itself. It's called form criticism and source criticism, uh, etc. Different kinds of ways of looking at it. So when you see two documents, Second Peter and Jude, and you see some things that are almost the same. I mean, they're saying almost the same thing. A scholar is going to jump, is going to make a move, like you said, and say, ah, from a form critical point of view, these two documents have some relationship with one another. And I want to just issue a caution there. I'm not against these forms of criticism, but they're, they're very narrow-minded. For example, let me give you a much more reasonable answer, and it's the one that you mentioned. If you and I saw a document today, and I sent an email, and you sent an email, and the person who received it said, you know, there are some really similar phrases. You know what they would assume? Oh, Terry and Cole have been talking to each other. They've been mm-hmm. discussing this issue, and they've probably discussed this issue several times. The other thing, and so that's a much more reasonable uh, uh To me, it's a much more reasonable conclusion. The other thing is, I think we sometimes make the mistake of thinking Jude wrote this letter, and this is the only time he ever said these things. Mm -hmm. It's entirely possible that Jude has taught Sunday school for years, and Jude has said these things for six months. And now he's writing them down. And so I would just caution our listeners when you read commentaries is, is don't overlook, don't, don't leave your common sense out of this equation as well. I think you're right. I think it's very likely that Peter and Jude had contact with one another, seen each other, heard each other's teaching, and are just saying some of the same things. Let's talk about the importance of the things that Jude references or cites in this book. The first one and the most obvious one, because it's it's introed as a quote, it comes in verse 14. Um, but there are several places where he does this, and that would be he is quoting Enoch. And an astute reader of this is going to say, hold on, in Genesis, Enoch doesn't say anything. So how do we know that Enoch prophesied what was going to happen when the Lord returns? We don't have that information in the Bible. Where would he have been getting this information? A good question. There is a whole body of writings 
in between the two testaments, at the end of the Old Testament, let's roughly call it 400 BC, and the beginning of the New Testament, obviously in the first century AD, and along around 200 or so, you see a number of documents that are not inspired word of God. Nevertheless, they represent for us what were religious people, Jews in this case, thinking about stories like Genesis chapter 6, where the angels came to uh, the daughters of men. And and you have that really cryptic story in Genesis chapter 6. How did they understand that? And so the book of First Enoch is an example of writing that basically recorded how they understood that in their discussions. And there are other documents like that, the Testament of Naphtali, etc. There are are all kinds of documents from this time period. And some of those documents talk about that incident, about the angels who rebelled, the angels who were disobedient to God. And so, obviously, Jude, as a Jew of the first century, obviously is aware of that. When he went into Barnes & Noble in the first century, there was a whole section there that had the book of First Enoch and things like that, just as we would go in today and maybe pick up a, a commentary. We don't think the commentary is the inspired word of God, but it might have some good insights into it. Well, Jude is obviously aware of these documents, and he makes some reference to them. The specific thing you mentioned is that Enoch, who is a character in Genesis... We don't have any record that Enoch had written anything or, or prophesied anything, but the tradition amongst the Jews was that he did prophesy some things, and they were later written down. It's hard for us to attest to the accuracy of that. Uh, I would simply point to the text and say Jude treats this as the way Jews in the first century understood some of these events. What would you add to that? I've been thinking this week about how we would compare those kinds of books to what we're doing right now. Is this on the level of the Chronicles of Narnia? Is this on the level of Mm -hmm. uh, the Left Behind books? Where does this play in the mind of a first century Jew? Because we never see a strong push to include things like the Book of Enoch in the canon. In fact... There's not a single sect of the church outside of certain groups of the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, right. which we don't usually consider, but they are, the, they are the holdout in this case of considering the Book of Enoch canonical. Other than that, there isn't a group that believes that the Book of Enoch is, is canonical. So it's not on the level of maybe 1st or 2nd Maccabees or something like that where right. you, have some dis- you have some disputes within Catholic versus Protestant, Greek Orthodox over whether or not this book should be canonical. So it's not on that level, but it would have been very well known, as you mentioned, by 1st century Jews. And mm-hmm. one of the things that it tells us is that Jude is a very traditional Jewish author. Right. He's, he's writing about things that Jews would have known. Uh, he is talking in a way that a first century Jew would have talked. Um, but the book of Enoch is just an informative document. We don't think it's inspired. We don't think that uh, everything in there, the catalogs of angels and everything, although they're very interesting, yes. uh, are giving us a divine word about what's going on. The other thing that's interesting about this is he refers to another book, and, th- and scholars actually disagree about this one. Mo- I think almost everybody, do you know of anybody that believes that 
that uh, 14 and 15 are not in some way a reference to the book of Enoch? No, I, I think that's pretty universally accepted. Um, there is another reference, and that one is in verses 9 and 10. Uh, the, when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses. That's one of those where you're reading along and, and you say, wait, what? Yeah. The archangel of Michael fighting the devil at least appears in the Bible. It appears in Zechariah chapter 3. Uh, but there have been people who think that this is a quote from another non-canonical book called The Assumption of Moses. Right. Uh, and, and here's where it's difficult to tell the assumption of Moses may be referring to Zechariah three, and right. Jude may be referencing it, or it may it, it may just be an overlap of coincidence. But regardless, th- there are references in here to things that we don't find in the canon, but they would have been very well known in the first century. Right, they would have been cultural, like religious cultural references, like we would make to popular Christian movements, uh, maybe something along the lines of like WWJD. Well, that, that's not right. biblical, but if you say that, almost every Christian knows what you're talking about. Uh, that's probably what's going on with these quotations in Jude. One other thing I'd, I'd point out here, too, is if you, if you say, wow, that's, that's tough because you have to know a lot to understand it. He's using those documents in a very supporting role. For example, the idea about uh, Moses, the, the reported or purported uh, quote from the Assumption of Moses, he's actually just using it to make the point of humility. Here with the idea from Enoch and talking about the angels and maybe adding a lot more information than we had, it's a lot more information than you need. His simple point is still well taken. If you just read Genesis 6, you understand that there are certain people who are appointed for destruction because of their rebellion against God, and that mm-hmm. even included angels. So if you just look at the basic point, uh, you could literally not mention Enoch, but he did because he felt like it was very impactful to people at the time. So I guess what I'm trying to say is whether or not you accept or have read or know about these books, these non-canonical books, they're not essential to any doctrine. Mm-hmm. They're simply supporting documents to help make the point more impactful. Right. I think that's a great observation. Is the, These are used as illustrations. Right. You, he, you can almost use it in the same way as, uh, well, now I'm forgetting if it was George Washington or Abraham Lincoln. I think it's, I think it's George Washington who... who uh, Chop down the cherry tree. Yeah. And you could say, you know, just like that, we should be humble. Well, okay, you're not you're not giving any credence necessarily to that, but you're using it as an illustration to say Exactly. You guys know the story. This is what that means. This is an instance of that. And and Jude is referring to things to help persuade his audience uh, to, like you said, be humble, to reject false teachers to pay attention to the things that God has has spoken to us. Let's jump into the text itself. The interesting thing about Jude is you don't have very many verses, but you have a lot packed into this letter. And it begins with the intro. And we could probably spend 30 minutes on the intro if we wanted. Just verses 1 and 2. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ, the brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. And you're going to see that when we come back, that same theme in the doxology. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Uh, The one who keeps us is Jesus Christ. Of course, the Holy Spirit is involved in that as well. But he's going to bookend this this letter talking about the real source of our 
life in Christ is that we are being kept by him uh, from stumbling, being presented blameless. We'll get to the doxology at the end, but that's the way he begins the letter. Now, verse 3 is one of the more famous verses in Jude because it's, it gives you a little bit of a head fake to start this letter. He says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, that's the letter he was going to write. Uh-huh. But now we get the letter that he did write. I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So we have an openly apologetic letter in in Jude, which which doesn't mean that he's apologizing. It means that he's defending certain things about the faith. And this phrase, once for all delivered to the saints, is really, really important. Mm-hmm. We would use that to generalize the teaching of the entire Bible. Right. Now, there's an interesting historical aspect about this. So you see Jude writing this only a few decades after Christ's resurrection. We see similar things like this in in. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, there was already a developed tradition of what the gospel was, what you needed to believe to be a Christian. A lot of times I think we get dragged into thinking that the church didn't really figure out what they believed for 300 years. And so, you know, it was just, it was kind of a political thing. And then Constantine and all of that. And it's easy to, to get drawn into arguments like the church doesn't really know what it's talking about. This is all arbitrary. But from this perspective, it seems like they really do know what they're talking about. Yeah, just a side note there. The book of 1 Corinthians uh, is pretty pretty accurately dated to 53, right around 53 AD. So assume for just a moment that the resurrection of Christ is, say, 33. Uh, basically, roughly 20 years later, you get 1 Corinthians 15 written, which is a beautiful, concise description of what the gospel is. I think Jude, we didn't talk about the dating, but think 50s or maybe 60s for Jude. In other Mm -hmm. words, within 20 years, and probably much earlier, we simply have evidence that within 20 years, it's exactly what you're saying, Cole, that the church knew exactly what they believed about the gospel. Right, so much so that he's willing to call out things that actually don't fit with the faith that has been delivered once and for all. This is is not a... uh, this is not a dynamic concept. This is fixed. I'm going to write to you about the faith that has been once and for all delivered. And he's saying, I wanted to write to you about our common salvation. That would be a, that would be a book like Philippians or maybe First yes. John or something. Right. But instead, what he says is, I actually need to write encouraging you that the faith that you have been given is actually worth fighting for. It's worth contending for. Uh, this is a this is a competitive, aggressive word that he's using. I want to appeal to you to fight for the faith, to not settle for it being diluted, to not settle for false teaching. Fight for what you know to be true about the faith. And then he's going to introduce in verse four the reason why they need to do this. Well, certain people have crept in and they are teaching false things in the church. And this is where things start to get pretty weird in the book of Jude. The way he describes these false teachers can get strange quickly. Like in in this first line, these people have crept in unnoticed, but they were long ago designated for condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. I want you to speak to the way that he the way that he characterizes false teachers here, but I want to just say one thing to set us up. As unpopular as it is to say this, it has been true from the first century all the way through the history of the church, and it is true now that false teaching and and sexual sin 
are constantly talked about together. Now, I don't mean that to say every false teaching or every false teacher has hidden sexual sin. I don't mean that. Right. But what I do, but I, what I do want to point out here is whether it's Paul, Peter, John, Jude, all over the New Testament, Jesus even talks this way. When you see false belief, many times it comes from false forms of worship. The primary form of false worship is sexual sin. So all through the New Testament, you see this theme of those who are teaching things that are false are usually telling people it's okay to do things sexually that it's actually not okay to do, biblically speaking. And he's actually going to make an accusation about these teachers. Uh, We see that same kind of accusation in the book of Revelation. In the letters to the churches, when we see sin among false teachers, it is sexual sin. Now, that's not always the case, but it is a theme in the Bible that we need to pay, pay attention to because it's a theme that's true about the human heart. So I just want to say that because it's easy to skip over this and think that this is really about doctrine. But in Jude's case, this really isn't as much about doctrine except as it pertains to what we can and cannot do, what we should and should not do, what is really good for us in God's good design for sexuality, and how people are distorting that in the way that they teach the early church. That's a great point you make because we live in a very permissive society and we understand love, and I'm using that word in a very cultural sense, to mean that a loving attitude is a permissive attitude. That's not a biblical point of view. It's not even, by the way, a parental point of view. I mean, as you raise your children, you don't understand truly loving your children as being ultra permissive. You understand it to do what is good for them. And that's a much more biblical way of understanding it. But you're right, Cole, that thread runs through all kinds of false teaching. It's rarely just doctrine. It's the effect of the doctrine. For example, in this passage, I'd make this interesting connection. He says, these people were designated for condemnation long ago. In other words, this has been prophesied about, and it still is. You know, as Paul says, in later times, there'll be people won't listen to sound teaching. They'll find teachers that, uh, you know, scratch their itching ears, tell them what they want to hear, which is rarely do people want to hear, I need to be more disciplined. What Mm -hmm. we want to hear is, I get to be my own master, I get to be my own boss, and I can do whatever I want to. And that manifests itself sexually. And he says, they deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. And you think, well, wait a minute. Teachers will come out and say, I believe in Jesus Christ, but he's going to equate these things. He's going to say that you actually are denying Jesus Christ. You can't say you follow Christ unless you're willing to obey Christ. And one of the evidences that you don't obey Christ is you don't do what he teaches. So what what do you think about that? Do you think those are synonymous? I think that's spot on because it's interesting to see him say, deny our only master and Lord. And I didn't do a word study on this before we did it, but I would almost guarantee you that you don't see that phrase again in the New Testament. It's It has a unique ring to it. It does. A lot of times you'll see our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, but I would almost guarantee you don't see our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ, anywhere else in the New Testament, because I think he's making a very specific point. What do you do to a master? You obey them. You obey your master. You obey your Lord. So not only is this really high Christology saying, look, the the word Lord across the New Testament oftentimes is reserved for God. We call Jesus Lord. It's it's an implicit proof that 
that these apostles thought Jesus was was God. But then to say master and Lord is exactly what you just pointed out. To follow Christ means to obey him. That's what the Great Commission says. Baptizing them and evangelizing, teaching them to obey. That's what it means to make a disciple. Well, and it's all over the New Testament. In fact, as long as we're here, I only have to turn one page to the left to that little letter of 2 John, which I'm sure we'll get to. But in the sixth verse, this is what John says, and this is love that we live according to his commandments. In other mm-hmm. words, all through the New Testament, you're going to see the equation of loving Christ with obeying Christ. And you're right. I don't recall that words there are despot and curios. Lord, I don't recall those two anywhere in the New Testament being linked together like that. That's a very astute observation. But back to the main point is they are basically perverting the grace of God into sensuality, which is, Jude is saying, is tantamount to denying the lordship, the fact that Jesus is no longer their master. So it's not so much that they were walking into town saying, oh, by the way, Jesus isn't the son of God or Jesus isn't the Christ. They were basically undermining that by saying, it's okay for you to do as you wish uh, sexually. And you're right. You find that linked just unbelievable amount of times. Yeah, it does cut against a little bit of what we think about when we talk about false teaching. So first John, for example, in that letter, we're going to conceive of false teaching as teaching things that are false about Christ from a doctrinal standpoint. So in 1 John, you have this group of people who have set up shop down the road. They've split the church. They've set up shop down the road. And they're teaching that Jesus Christ didn't actually come in the flesh. So they're teaching things that are doctrinally wrong. The point I think you're making that that I want to emphasize here is Jude is also teaching that these people are doctrinally wrong. But the doctrine is not what we consider doctrine. So they're not teaching a heresy about Christ's nature or the nature of Scripture. What they're teaching is actually a more core refusal to believe the gospel message. And I know we're hammering this, but it it, it really needs to be said because it is so applicable to us today. Mm -hmm. The problem with what what they're saying is that you can do what you want sexually with your body and it doesn't actually affect your relationship with God. What Jude is saying is, no, you must obey, which means every part of your life is open to be transformed, must come under the submission right. of, of Christ, no matter what you feel like, no matter what your desires are, you actually have to obey. Um, and to not do that is really to deny the Lordship of Christ. It's not a preferential thing. It's not just a sanctification thing. But right. from a from a worldview standpoint, it is a denial of the gospel message. So he starts that way, sets that up, and then he's going to use examples of this all over through the book. And I'm just going to point those out now, and then we can mm-hmm. move through the other things that he says. Uh, an interesting point that he makes in verse 7 pertains to this same theme, just as Sodom and Gomorrah in the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual morality, pursued unnatural desire, serving as example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. What Jude is not doing is denying the grace of God for sinners of every kind. In fact, that's that's the opposite of what he's doing. He's saying God's grace can come to anyone uh, because we are kept by Jesus Christ, not by our own power or will. And we're going to see again, he has a very pastoral end to this letter about how to treat people who are in rebellion. He does. um, To reach out and snatch them out of fire, to encourage them to trust in Christ. But in the condemnation passages, 
like this one. He's pointing out, look, Jesus, you know, Jesus has been around before the incarnation. He is he is God. He was a member of the Trinity. He is mm-hmm. overseeing the affairs of the world. And one of the things that he attributes to Jesus is the role of judgment. Jesus right. is involved in the judgment of God. And uh, he saved a group of people out of Egypt, and he destroyed a group of people that did not believe. Right. So we can't conceive of Jesus apart from the broader work of God. And when it comes to Sodom and Gomorrah... Um, they serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. That's referring to the eternal judgment in Revelation. Now, this is a little bit of a sidebar, but you see this a lot, so I feel like we should mention it. When it comes to discussions about homosexuality and the biblical witness, what's become really popular is for people to go back and look sociologically and textually about Sodom and Gomorrah and make the argument that in Genesis... Sodom and Gomorrah is not condemned for their sexual sin. In fact, they are condemned for xenophobia. They are condemned for not entertaining strangers hospitably. Um, and you see people push back and say, actually, Sodom and Gomorrah isn't, isn't about homosexuality, isn't about sexual sin at all. Right. This is a clear case of where we need to let the Bible interpret the Bible. If Jude didn't exist, that might be a plausible explanation. I don't think that's I don't think that's right, even from the Genesis account. But maybe that would be plausible. But when we have a text in the Bible interpreting another text in the Bible, telling us what that text means, we should pay attention to it. That right. there is a, a, a sexual sin element in Sodom and Gomorrah. The same thing is true, by the way, in another example that he gives. So, if you go down to verse eleven. He's going to talk about three distinct periods of time, the way of Cain, the rebellion of Cain. Mm-hmm. This is interesting because Cain doesn't have any sexual sin in the, in the book of Genesis. His sin is jealousy. Obviously, he kills his brother. He rebels mm-hmm. against God. Uh, there are extra canonical works that would lead us to believe that the people thought of Cain as somebody who had committed sexual sin. In fact, mm-hmm. most of what you see, like in the Qumran community, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, is is a ongoing examination of Cain in that same light. The same is true with Balaam. Balaam uh, is not talked about originally in Numbers as having anything to do with sexual sin, but Jude seems to cite that here. That's because later Balaam is killed, and when that is reported, it's said because he led Israel into sexual sin. Mm -hmm. So he's referring to this through the whole thing. This appears to be the issue in the church that Jude is writing to. Um, What else do we see in here about the false teachers that is is of note? Well, uh, one other thing I think is interesting is the way they validated their teaching. They talk a lot here about being spiritual. You get the idea of dreams. They, they get their information through these dreams. You don't really see, what you don't see there is that connection to the apostolic source. In other words, this is what Jesus said. It's like, no, this is what was revealed to me now in a dream. And I am a spiritually attuned person. And I kind of think a little bit, that always makes me think of spiritual people in our world today that are not biblical. Right. Yeah, because we obviously want people to be biblical and spiritual. <laughs> yes. There's a lot in the New Testament about discerning spiritually in Paul. And and uh, this, this text, though, says, and Jude is actually giving us a great pastoral example here. 
He is confronting this teaching with biblical, apostolic, trusted sources to talk about what's been revealed once and for all right. to the saints. He's confronting these false teachers. The only other thing I want I want to point out here is these these false teachers are leaders in the in the church that he's writing about. So he says in verse twelve. They are hidden reefs at your love feast, which is a really interesting term in and of itself. Uh, I think this is a description of the way that they were doing communion, these agape feasts in the early church, which is mm-hmm. which is pretty cool. But anyway, they're at these feasts, they're eating, but they are shepherds feeding themselves. Yeah. Waterless clouds swept along by winds. They are completely unstable, fruitless trees. They're supposed to be feeding the flock of God, and instead they're taking advantage of the flock of God to further their own goals, their own sin. This is a pretty, this is a pretty damning uh, condemnation of these people because they're pastors, it seems like. They may not be the, the lead person in the church, but right. they're in church leadership. And uh, they are wandering stars. Instead of being fixed in the sky, they are wandering stars uh, who are leading people astray. Connection there. That always reminds me when I read this about Acts chapter 20. And this is Paul on his way to Rome. Final. Well, not necessarily final, but he's on his trip to Rome near the end of Acts. And he goes to speak. He stops and speaks to the elders, the leaders of the church in Ephesus. And he, you remember the passage. He says, the time will come when there will be wolves among the flock even from among your own number. And I think that is mm-hmm. what we're seeing there and, and continue to see is even church leaders, uh, pastors, elders could literally prey upon the flock that they're supposed to be shepherding. Mm-hmm. Let's jump to the end now to see the pastoral advice that Jude gives to these people who are undergoing this kind of deception. If you look at verse 20, he gives this amazing prescription uh, to the people who, who are reading this letter. But you, beloved, building yourself up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God. That reminds me of John 15. I'm the vine, yes. you're the branches. Abide. That's, what, that's one right. of the things that we do is we abide And we ask, and Jesus does the keeping, waiting for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear. And this is one of my favorite phrases in this book, hating even the garment which is stained by the flesh. So he gives some great pastoral advice here to these people. What part of this, these couple of verses sticks out to you? Uh, two things. Number one, I just I can't let this go by without pointing out the Trinity in verses 20 and 21. Seriously, I love the way the Bible does this. You see the pray in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's mm-hmm. just sort of a, a drive-by point I'd like to make as yeah. you see the, the person of God in, in three and one show up in this passage. You know, Cole, uh, I Here's what this makes me think. This is my take on this. Having mercy on those who doubt, in other words, being patient with those who are struggling and having mercy on them, not compromising the truth, but have mercy, saving others, you know, by snatching them out of the fire. That tells me that we are pleading, praying, reasoning with our brothers and sisters who are being 
tempted to be led astray and literally helping them come back. This is Jesus going after the lost sheep and bringing them back into the flock. But the hardest thing for me in this is showing for to the others showing mercy with fear hating even the garment stained by the flesh. And here's how I'm going to read this. This is people that didn't uh, just doubt. This isn't even people who were starting off on the wrong track that you went after and with tears and prayers and reasoning you brought them. These are people that are indeed uh, out in the wilderness. This is the, Mm -hmm. the lost sheep out in the wilderness. And I kind of, my fleshly nature was says, fine, then write them off, condemn them, Instead, he says, have mercy even on them with fear because they are in a very dangerous situation, hating what they are teaching, believing, or or doing. And I Mm -hmm. find that to be the most personally challenging. And it makes me think of Jesus and reminds me that Jesus split the world not into the good people and the bad people, although there's obviously truth in that, and he will judge the world. But he said, I'd prefer you look at it in this phase of history as lost and found. Mm-hmm. And, and so even those who were once found, who appear now to be wandering and lost, have mercy on them, even as you hate the lifestyle or you hate what they're doing. And what do you think about that? That one really hits me in the heart a little bit. Yeah, it reminds me of, and I think we talked about this when we did the book of James, it reminds me of James' emphasis, and he says, hey, uh, this is this is true religion, widows and orphans. And that passage gets quote, quoted a lot without the rest of the verse. It it's, does, right. You know, this is true religion, to take care of widows and orphans and to keep oneself from the love of the world. So worldliness here is condemned, even as you love those people who are in the world. Um, that's a great way to put it on your part, having mercy on those who are doing the doubting, but hating the garment stained by the flesh. And this, this word is interesting. The word garment here is a little bit different than anything we have when it comes to clothing, but it'd be like an undershirt or a tunic that's worn up next to the skin. Yeah. It's so it's something that takes on the, the oils and uh, even the scent of the skin. That's what he, that's the metaphor he's using here is to hate even the garment stained by the flesh. Um, Well, and uh, if I could add in here too, just a point that you uh, probably also know, but that word, the garment stained, that Greek word is the same one in the passage in James that you talked about. Pure and undefiled mm -hmm. religion is this uh, to, uh, take care of widows and orphans in their distress, and keep oneself unstained by the world. It's literally the same words. You get the exact same idea here. That's a good... This is a consistent point through the New Testament. Um, Let's move on to the doxology here at the end. This is one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible. Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now and forever. Amen. One of the best, one of the best passages in the Bible. It'd be easy for us to get off and preach this passage, which I mm-hmm. don't want to do. It's always difficult uh, to not preach through these texts or to give... Uh, pastoral lessons or something like that from these tests, because this one just screams at you to do that. 
I want to point out two things in the in the text that I think are really interesting, and then I'll let you I'll let you close us on this. Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, the word stumbling is is a really interesting word picture. It comes from it means stumbling, um, and whenever we say this word means, it, it means what is translated. But sometimes it's nice to know what word picture is embedded right. in, in this term. This term refers to what, how you would keep a horse from stumbling if you're leading it along a path. So it's mm. a sure-footedness. Yeah. It goes along with what you see in the Psalms where he sets my feet upon the rock. He makes my steps secure. Uh, he is able to guard you. And this is a military word to guard you so that you are sure footed and mm. to stand you before God blameless. And he does it with great joys, his joy to keep you from stumbling. Mm-hmm. I don't think we think about Christ in that way enough. It is it is actually a joy for him, not just to redeem you, but also to keep you from stumbling so that he can present you blameless before the presence of his glory uh, to God in, in the day of judgment. What a great thing to say for believers. It's beautiful. And you know, it's, it's funny you say that because you're, you make a great point. Sometimes we think of following Christ as a duty, as a burden. And obviously there will be burdens that come upon us. But if we thought about following Christ and he's walking through a minefield, and that's the only safe place to be. That's what you're describing. In that mm-hmm. case, it really changes our perspective. Mm-hmm. What's the second thing out of there that you saw? Notice how many times at the how many things he stacks up at the end here. This is this is what you see a lot of times in doxology. Doxology is a word of glory and praise to God. You see Paul do this a lot. He'll mm-hmm. be making a theological point and then he'll almost just lose himself into doxology. Yeah. You see this in, at the end of Romans 11 is one of the best examples. He's talking about the things about God that we can't fathom. And then he just goes off into how great are the depths and the riches of the love of God. This is how he ends this letter and he's stacking up things, glory and majesty and dominion and authority I had a seminary professor, I think I've said this on the podcast before, I had a seminary professor say that good theology should always lead to worship. Yeah. Or good good theology leads to doxology. Yeah. And what's what's so great about the book of Jude is that he condemns these teachers. It calls to mind the fact that we could easily be one of these false teachers mm-hmm. if it weren't for the work of Christ and the Holy Spirit in our own hearts, keeping us us following him, us being disciplined, us working hard to remove obstacles from our path mm-hmm. that, that cause us to stumble, trusting the power of the Holy Spirit. And he gets to the end. And if, if you're going to endeavor to live the kind of life that Jude has just described that you live, you need this kind of worship and doxology to go along with it. You need to understand underneath all of your efforts and all of the things that we're able to accomplish on our own, there is one who is able to keep you from stumbling. And there is one who is going to take you and hold you up and present you before God in the day of judgment. And he is the one that deserves all of these things, glory, majesty, dominion, and authority forever and ever. I just think it's the perfect way to end the book. I do too. I think it's, and this is something else. We talk a lot about doctrine and teaching and analyzing, and that's kind of the creatures that we are as reasoning beings. But every, every now and then, you need to just notice what you just said is that good theology 
turns into doxology. And I would just recommend all of you take your highlighter or whatever you like to do or tabs or whatever and go to Romans chapter 8 and look at the end of that. Go to Romans chapter 11 and look at the spontaneous burst of worship. Uh, And then tucked away in this little gem of a letter called Jude is highlight those verses. And just every now and then, it's great to just go read that and just be reminded and have your spirit lifted up by the glory of God. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.